Welcome to Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. We're your hosts, Dr. Melissa Zielinski and Ms. Marley Fradley. Each month, we'll be bringing you interesting insights, fascinating research, and compelling stories from our members of ISTSS. We are here to illuminate the different facets of trauma and how people can heal from these experiences. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, this month, we're glad to be joined by three leading experts in the intersections among climate change, traumatic stress, and PTSD. Um, and they're going to share with us more about this important topic. Uh, welcome, you guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Go ahead and take a moment to introduce yourselves. Um, sure. Thanks, Marley. Uh, perhaps I can go first. So I'm Yura Gustinavichis. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the McGill School of Population and Global Health. Um, my training is predominantly in public mental health, um, and I work predominantly on mental health and psychosocial support program adaptation, implementation, and evaluation in humanitarian and other settings. I've also done some work to better understand mental health and well-being needs and resources um, within and across settings. And I come to climate change from this area, really with a strong sort of intervention and implementation focus. Um, I also uh, teach at the graduate level on climate change and mental health. Hello, uh, my name is Alessandro. I am a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. My background is in clinical psychology, uh, although as with Yura, I'm sort of now moving more towards a kind of public mental health um, space. And I would say that I sort of got to the climate change and mental health area um, from uh, having worked uh, sort of in recent years on the mental health consequences and response to a variety of different um, adverse events from disasters to armed conflict. Uh, I worked in different contexts in different countries on, on the topic. Uh, and to me, I think it felt like a natural uh, and kind of logical um, progression as we know that kind of climate change is leading to more extreme and frequent weather events and that there is uh, at least associative evidence for the relationship between climate change and conflict. Um, and so moving more towards the climate change and mental health uh, area made, made a lot of sense uh, to me. And I'm Sarah Lowe. I am a clinical psychologist by training and assistant professor of social and behavioral sciences at Yale School of Public Health. And my journey to climate change and mental health has been a bit circuitous. So I started graduate school with an interest in depression and anxiety amongst uh, adolescents and young adults from historically marginalized populations facing adversity, but not necessarily disasters and climate change. And then when I was applying to graduate school, Hurricane Katrina hit. And I think, as it did for many people, the hurricane and its aftermath opened my eyes to the ways in which these types of extreme weather events can both illuminate and unfortunately exacerbate pre-existing social, economic, and racial inequalities. And I had the opportunity to work on a study of low-income parents who had faced Hurricane Katrina. And from there, I did more work on weather-related extremes, including work after Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Ike, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, so another type of disaster. And when I started my position at Yale two years ago, I thought about the ways I wanted to expand my research program. And I thought about two key ways. The first was globally, so moving beyond the United States context, 
And the second was thinking about the broader range of climate change related exposures and their impacts on mental health and trauma. Um, knowing that with a focus on weather related extremes, we were just really scratching the surface on the, the large impact of, of climate change on health and mental health. So really excited to be here. Thank you all so much. We're thrilled to have you here to talk about this important topic um, and um, just really want to, to praise and highlight all of your work in this area, including um, the briefing paper that you all worked so hard on for ISTSS that came out um, this past April on uh, global climate change and trauma, which we'll get to hear about, but I uh, just want to say from the beginning that folks should definitely uh, give a look. So um, thank you. Definitely, thank you all for being here. Um, so we thought that we would start with just a very foundational question for listeners who may be new to this topic. Um, and or you can feel free to start here. Um, but what does climate change have to do with trauma? Well, thanks, Marley. That's a really great question. Um, I think I'll just kind of take a, you know, take a bird's eye view to start, and then I'll turn it over to Sarah to really talk about the sort of deep and integrated links, I think, with trauma. Um, and I just want to emphasize that, you know, um, research and the literature that we have really emphasizes and points to the importance of the environments in which we live for our physical and our mental health and well-being. Um, so environments really matter. And climate change is um, ultimately changing our environments. Um, it's impacting ecosystems, including the ones in which um, we are part of. And if left, if left unaddressed, um, ultimately it's gonna have catastrophic consequences on um, all populations um, and, and species. Um, but in, you know, relevant to our conversation today, these cat catastrophic consequences really extend um, into sort of the mental health realm. Um, and the impacts of climate change on traumatic stress and on other aspects of mental health really come up for us from problems that we experience collectively um, and completely unequally. So these are problems that are not distributed equally across populations, but that we are, we are experiencing um, together as, as a human species. And these include things like insufficient political will and harmful policies, um, elevated exposure to disasters, poverty, violence, um, changes to places and landscapes that are really important to us, um, and then things that really harm our physical health and the health of ecosystems that I mentioned earlier. Um, the, the amazing thing is that effective and feasible methods for actually mitigating, meaning sort of reducing um, climate change already exist and or reducing sort of the, the impacts of climate change already exist. And um, if these things were promptly and implement, you know, promptly and, and sort of effectively implemented, um, th that would be the best tool for preventing trauma for generations. Um, but as we've seen, that's not, you know, consistently happening, although we are seeing some signs that, that um, things might be starting to change. Um, so our hope really with this briefing paper was just to highlight some of the evidence that's available on climate change and trauma um, and to talk a little bit about what's needed for the future, what evidence and action is required to really prioritize, promote and protect mental health and well-being um, as climate change uh, 
uh, as climate change worsens the conditions in which we're living. So how do we do that? Um, but I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit actually from Sarah in terms of the sort of the specific trauma framing. Um, Sarah, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think when people hear climate change, they don't necessarily think trauma. <clears throat> um, but I definitely think climate change is connected to trauma in ways that are both obvious and maybe not so obvious. So I'm going to go through uh, three or four different ways. So the first and most obvious one are weather-related extreme events. So with climate change, these types of events are likely to increase in frequency and intensity and geographic scope. Um, and uh, with them come other trauma, like bereavement and traumatic injuries, and maybe less so obvious, um, we know from these types of events, and this happened in the COVID-19 context too, that disasters increase the risk of uh, various forms of violence, including child and elder abuse, intimate partner violence, and so on. Um, but then looking beyond weather-related extreme events, we know that other climate change-related impacts are associated with an increased likelihood of um, trauma and violence. So as an example, there's research showing that extreme heat increases the likelihood of conflict and violence, including self-directed violence, such as suicidality. Um, third, we know that climate change is going to lead to massive displacement and competition over resources. Um, and this could lead to conflicts between migrants and host communities, escalating to violence, but even um, in um, less intense forms like discrimination can have major mental health impacts. And then also these types of events lead to tremendous um, vicarious exposure, both in first responders, but also people um, viewing these events and their effects through the media. And while media exposure um, does not currently fit in within a DSM framework of what constitutes or what defines trauma. We know from scholars like Roxanne Cohen-Silver and Allison Holman and Kate McLaughlin that uh, media exposure is associated with um, symptoms that look very much like traumatic stress as well as symptoms of other mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. And just kind of piggybacking off that, you said kind of look like conditions like um post-traumatic stress, that was something we kind of wanted to give as context for listeners too, is, is taking that a step further and thinking about implications of climate change for PTSD specifically and the links that, you know, we might be expecting there. Um, could one of y'all say a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think, Ali, are you going to talk about that? So definitely one thing that I have also been thinking about when thinking about this podcast is the, not only the sort of nature of different types of traumatic exposures that might sort of slightly change, but also the kind of frequency and recurrence of uh, traumatic exposures. And for example, in light of the ICD-11 uh, revisions of the PTSD diagnosis and the inclusion, for example, of the complex PTSD diagnosis, I think climate change might create some sort of interesting scenarios in that, in that people are possibly going to be sort of unlikely to be exposed to one type uh, of traumatic events in the course of their lives, but they might be exposed to recurring, chronic, repeated uh, traumatic exposures from which, you know, escape is um, in many cases impossible. And that very much aligns with the definition of, of a complex uh, type of traumatic event that might therefore result in a more complex um, symptomatological presentation. Um, I, I think this is 
uh, I think there isn't yet evidence on this, but I think it's something that uh, we might be interested in looking towards in the future. So not only the change in the nature of the uh, trauma exposures, but in the in the temporality and in the frequency that people might get exposed to traumatic events. Yeah, and what I would add to that, I, I mean, I think that's so interesting. Um, when thinking about climate change and trauma, we know that um, you know if if the prevalence of trauma increases, the prevalence of PTSD is likely to increase as well, and that people who are exposed to multiple traumas are at greater risk for PTSD. Um, something else I would want to emphasize, and I think um, came through in the briefing paper, was that human beings are a very resilient and adaptive species, and that most people who are exposed to traumatic events, even multiple traumatic events, um, do come through with minimal symptoms. Um, and I think that's important when thinking about how human beings are going to counter and adapt to climate change. Um, and then something else I would want to emphasize is that we know from the literature that traumatic events are associated with PTSD, but they also increase risk for a range of mental health conditions beyond PTSD. So I mentioned uh, depression and anxiety, but also suicidality, um, psychotic symptoms. Um, they impact our social relationships, our, our economic standing, our physical health, and all of these are intertwined with each other. And I'll, I'll just add, Sarah, that you know we're um, we're learning too about sort of new new constructs that are related to climate change that we don't understand very well in in the context of trauma. So things like ecological grief, um, eco anxiety, or climate change anxiety. These are constructs that listeners might be hearing about, um, you know, in, in the sort of popular media. Um, but really, on the research side, that we're only starting to uh, to scratch the surface on and really and really um, start to understand. And I don't think that the links between those things and trauma are, are well understood. Um, so these are things that we, yeah, we definitely need to understand more about in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I know that there's been some great work by Susan Clayton, who was a co-author on the briefing and others, um, looking at climate change anxiety um, as distinctive from generalized anxiety and, and other forms of mental health conditions that we know more about. Um, and considering when climate change anxiety is related to these mental health conditions and when it's not. Um, because we know that anxiety can be a really powerful motivator to making change. So it's possible that people who feel anxious and recognize climate change and act on this anxiety, um, either individually or collectively, um, could uh, be spared some of those adverse mental health consequences. So that's, uh, I think, a burgeoning area of research. Mm -hmm. And also, I think one thing that I also wanted to add, as you were describing the relationship between sort of climate change and trauma, is also the, the complex indirect pathways through which uh, climate change is going to impact trauma, and often through social determinants uh, of, of mental health. Uh, we know that climate change, you know, we know in general that trauma doesn't fall randomly on communities and people. It, it follows very precise paths of historical discrimination and marginalization of communities. Uh, and this is going to be the same, and it is the same for, for, for climate change stressors. So I think that um, when we think about interventions and policies, um, placing trauma in its socioeconomic political context is, is really a key, a key priority, uh, even more, I think, in, in climate change, because the roots of climate change are, are also inherently socio-political and economical. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, listening to everyone talk, I just, it, it strikes me how important it is that we're having this conversation um, because of how wide reaching the impacts of, um, of climate change are, are likely to be, how much we can anticipate and how much we still need to know. Um, and so hopefully, you know, um, I think we, we anticipate having listeners from lots of different backgrounds, clinical research policy. And I think um, there's a piece for everybody to be paying attention to in this. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much for outlining that for us. Um, I'm going to circle back around briefly to something that we've mentioned a couple of times, but all of you were key contributors to ISTSS's most recent briefing paper on global climate change and trauma. Um, would you want to tell us a little bit about the process of doing that briefing paper and then maybe some highlights of that work? Sure, I can start off and then uh, Sarah and Ali, feel free to just jump in. Um, so yeah, the briefing paper um, was really this kind of amazing journey that um, 10 co-authors participated in um, from four countries internationally. Um, and we, the co-authors really came from a variety of disciplines, so public health, clinical psychology, uh, environmental psychology, medicine, um, and many of us actually hadn't met each other before we met sort of virtually by, <laughs> by contributing to this. So, um, you know, I kind of served the role of just identifying and putting together the team and then everyone sort of contributed based on their area of expertise. Um, and then I kind of worked to weave everything together into, uh, into sort of the final product. And we went through a number of rounds of revision, um, both internally and then with ISTSS. Um, we had tremendous support and, um, and wonderful contribution from ISTSS leadership, so specifically from the Public Health and Policy Committee um, and the past president, um, Dr. Deborah Kaysen. We we're really lucky to have their input. And overall, um, you know, hopefully listeners will actually look at and read the briefing paper, um, but it is quite long. So just to kind of, again, provide um, a little bit of a, a snapshot of its structure, um, we did try to kind of clarify some of the links, or at least the way we see the links right now, and that may change over time as there's more research in this area between um, climate change and trauma. Um, and so we started off with kind of a investigation of sort of how climate change can actually cause um, DSM criterion A sort of qualifying traumas. Um, we also looked at how the accumulation of climate change stressors over the life course um, and through the social and environmental determinants of mental health, which Ali talked about a little bit just now, how these things, you know, this accumulation of stressors could actually be linked to adverse outcomes. So both in terms of traumatic stress, but also more broadly, as Sarah said earlier, because we know that trauma impacts um, a number of outcomes. Um, and then we also look a little bit about um, sorry, at the impacts of vicarious experience um, of climate change and the anticipation of climate change related stressors. And so again, these are emerging areas, but we wanted to be sure that we attended that attended to them. And then the briefing paper also talks about protective factors, resilience, post-traumatic growth, all in the context of climate change and trauma, as well as current and future clinical uh, public health and policy initiatives. And then we offered a number of recommendations at the end. Um, Sarah and Ali, I don't know if I missed anything, but feel free to <laughs> jump in if I did. No, I thought that was a great summary. I mean, something I would want to emphasize is um, that Yura was a amazing leader in bringing everyone together. And like she said, you know, I looked at the, the list of 10 co-authors before um, this podcast and I was like, I think I've only met one of you all in person. 
and some I have met virtually and some I haven't. Um, and I think that's a really exciting thing about this field is that there are so many people coming forward with interest in this area and addressing such a big problem um, that there are a lot of different points of synergy between different fields and, and different um, experts. And I can say that reading through drafts and the final project of the briefing paper, I learned a tremendous amount um, that there were references and, and research areas that I was not aware of and um, initiatives in climate change and psychology that I didn't know about. So um, that's just all to say that it's a good read and that even as someone who's working in this area, there's still so much to learn. I can uh, echo as, as somebody who was not very familiar with this area before reading the briefing paper, just, um, you know, wonderful job on creating something that was really accessible and a great, um, I think, resource and tool for folks who may not know a lot. So definitely encouraging folks to, to give it a read. Um, and I know one thing that kind of really struck me from the from the very beginning of the briefing paper and, and the opening quote of it actually was the emphasis on how we really just cannot extract, you know, health and mental health from our environments. Right. And um, I, while I feel like this is something that's well known, just kind of seeing it acknowledged from the start of the paper was very refreshing, kind of putting that um, that lens on on this work um, and that was something that I, I thought maybe we would want to expand a little bit on. Um, so, you know, we know that certain regions and communities will be and and already are being impacted more uh, by global climate change than other areas. And I wanted to put out to the group a question um, of, you know, what should we all be thinking about related to the differential impacts of this global stressor on specific regions and communities? Yeah, so I, I can start with that one. Um, I mean, we know that it's a situation where we are all in the same storm, but very much not all in the same boat and sometimes literally, um, and that there are certain groups who are at greater risk, including those living in lower middle income countries and within countries, even high income countries, those who um, are living with less income, who are racial minorities, who are socially isolated are at greater risk and also people whose livelihood depends on the natural landscape, um, like farmers, indigenous communities, um, so on and so forth. Um, so thinking about that, both in terms of research directions and interventions, um, I think we need to focus our attention on those disparate impacts and on communities. Like I know in the disaster literature, there are virtually no, I mean, there's, I wouldn't say none, but there are very few studies taking place in Africa. Um, for example, and it's not like there aren't disasters there. Um, and then also when thinking about both research and interventions, um, working with communities in learning from them um, about what they're already doing to cope with climate change, um, working within their value systems, um, not being extractive, um, and um, yeah, empowering people and learning from them as we do research. Um, if I can also connect to that, I think that uh, another interesting perspective when looking at the differential impacts is looking at the differential impacts of climate change on people with pre-existing 
mental health conditions. And I think that traditionally, you know, even in the disaster or in the conflict uh, mental health area, that has been an area that has been generally quite neglected, especially in the sort of humanitarian setting. Um, and we know quite little about, you know, how, how do those people cope uh, in, in those contexts? What interventions can we develop specifically for uh, this part of the population? And I think an exciting thing about the climate change and mental health era is the sort of possibility of learning from previous areas and what are the blind spots that we have identified in other similar areas and, and try and sort of rectify uh, that a bit, especially since there is emerging evidence, for example, on how people with pre-existing mental health conditions have higher mortality rates in cases of heat waves and other climate change stresses. And I think bringing that forward to thinking about, you know, how can we tailor mitigation and adaptation strategies to people with pre-existing severe mental health conditions? Uh, how can we include people with severe mental health conditions into interventions? Um, I think those are really key questions that we will need to address in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you guys so much. That was a great question, Dr. Zelensky, and you guys had excellent answers. Um, so another thing that I know that I'm interested in, and I think our listeners would also love to know more about, is the research side of things here. Um, so would you care to share a little bit more about where the current research literature stands on this topic? Um, you know, maybe how researchers have been going about studying this topic so far, what innovations and methods are currently being used? Um, Ali, you can feel to take this one and anybody else can also jump in. Definitely. Thanks, Marley. Um, so I think that even though it, climate change and mental health is a relatively sort of novel area, I think we can already start identifying a number of trends uh, in the evidence to date. Um, and I think one overarching trend is the fact that most literature to date has really focused on understandably, I think, uh, trying to outline the impacts that climate change is having on mental health. So most research has really focused on trying to highlight the, 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 the impact of climate change on a variety of different mental health outcomes. Um, on the other hand, I think that we have much less uh, evidence in literature on things like intervention, cost effectiveness of intervention, integration of mental health um, issues within mitigation and adaptation strategies, as most of the research has really focused on this attribution link. But I think when focusing on the research that focuses on climate change and mental health, I think the evidence is sort of growing and we can make a reasonable uh, sort of statement about how we now know that a variety of different climate change uh, exposures uh, have been linked to a variety of different mental health outcomes from, as we were saying before, increased mortality in people with pre-existing mental health conditions, from increased rates of hospitalization uh, in uh, a variety of different climate change exposures, increased suicide rates in certain settings, and in general, increased rates of kind of psychological distress and mental health symptoms. Always, I think, bearing in mind the really important point that Sarah made about the fact that we know from the disaster mental health literature how the majority of people tend to with time show resilience in the face of those stresses. Um, but even when I think when we look at different types of climate change exposure, we have differential evidence on different types of exposure. So for example, while we have quite a lot of evidence on extreme weather events coming from the disaster mental health literature, actually as we move more towards the kind of more subacute and chronic type of climate change exposures, there actually is less 
evidence on that. There is increasing evidence on things like heat waves and droughts, but there is virtually very little evidence on more chronic and subacute climate change exposures, such as increasing temperatures and increasing sea level rises. And that is possibly very much linked also to a methodological point that is connected to the complexity of assessing certain climate change exposures versus others. I think another point that we can highlight is the fact, as Sarah was highlighting before, that to date, most of the research conducted has been conducted in high income countries such as Australia, Canada, Europe, North America, and um, we actually don't have a lot of evidence coming from settings that are likely to be more vulnerable and more at risk of uh, climate exposures. Um, so that's, I think, another important point. I don't know whether Sarah and Euro wanted to mention anything else. Well, I, I guess, Ali, one thing that I can add um, is just uh, in sort of a pretty famous paper in this area um, from 2018, um, Helen Berry, who's also a co-author on our on our um, briefing paper, brought to light the importance of systems thinking for climate change and mental health research. And this is really the idea that we don't look at sort of um, or limit our view within research to sort of single relationships. So, for example, what is the impact of a single climate change related exposure on a single mental health outcome, but we take a much broader view where we think about the system of impacts um, within which climate change and mental health are housed and how those factors within the system actually interact to produce outcomes relevant to mental health and, and trauma, traumatic stress, um, perhaps more specifically. And I, I think this is really important because what, what it means for us is, number one, that we need to be using um, methods creatively, right, whether or not they're actually sort of systems methods. Um, but the second thing I think that's really important to highlight is that it brings into focus the importance of collaborating across disciplines and, and not doing siloed work. Um, so in other words, you know, I'm afraid to say that research or even intervention, you know, program or policy that really focuses solely on trauma without considering this broader system of impacts is probably not going to be very effective. Um, you know, and so we really need to as researchers, but also as um, as program folks, as clinicians, as policymakers to be thinking about that and to be approaching these these problems from our perspective, our expertise, but with a team um, of, of widespread expertise um, in order to really, you know, approach this holistically, because I think that's required. And systems thinking, for me at least, really hits that home. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really like that, Yura. And when I think about how to move this field forward, I always think about um, like three things. The first is communication. So that as researchers in whatever field you're in, we use certain jargon and we get kind of siloed in our areas and we need to learn how to communicate our work clearly in a way that makes sense to people in other disciplines as well as the general public. And then the second is connection across different disciplines. So, um, you know, not only meeting people, but nurturing relationships and collaboration. And oftentimes this um, entails a lot of humility and giving up control because you're not going to know every single aspect of every single project because we all share different expertise and, and we need to rely on each other from economists, biologists, exposure scientists, computer programmers, and so on. And then we also need resources to do it. That's like an unfortunate reality that um, a lot of times projects are contingent on, on funding um, to bring people together to address these big problems. And I, 
I also wanted to, I think to also going back to the, the points that Yuri was making and also that Sarah highlighted about the need for interdisciplinary work. I think that climate change will make us face a number of methodological issues that will kind of force us to really have to look beyond uh, psychology and psychiatry and sort of mental health sciences to to really learn how to manage those methodological complexities i mean to to sort of give a few examples you know i think for example there are some obviously attribution complexities in climate change firstly in attributing specific uh, climate change exposures to climate change and secondly to making the attribution link from that specific event to mental health. And so, for example, there are a number of, of methods called detection and attribution studies that have attempted to uh, really robustly manage to make those attribution claims concerning the link between climate change and health. And we haven't really started looking at those from the mental health perspective yet. Or similarly, another methodological issue is that climate change, unlike other type of traumatic events, will likely take place over very long time spans, meaning that often what we're studying in studies is things like weather variability or climate variability rather than climate change. Uh, and in that case, things like projection studies that allow us to sort of project the future for long time spans, uh, what the effects of a certain stressor might be, could be really, really helpful. But I think both those methods uh, really highlight the need for interdisciplinarity for communication uh, between different different experts. And I think that's also what makes I think, the climate change and mental health space really exciting and, and an opportunity for many of us to really learn from others. I think those are all just really important points that highlight the complexity and how much you know team science and multidisciplinary collaboration will really be needed in this space, as y'all have said. Um, with that, I'm, I'm actually going to switch hats a little bit um, and switch over to, to thinking about this through a clinical lens. Um, and, you know, just wanted to, to, to get y'all's take on essentially what the implications are of, of global climate change for interventions, for clinicians. Um, you know, what should folks be thinking about in the clinical space? I can start with that one, but I'm sure Sarah and Europe are going to have lots of interesting things to say as well about this. For me, something briefly, I guess, that I wanted to mention and something that recently I've sort of started to get interested in is the issue of using existing interventions uh, in the context of climate change. And specifically in the sort of humanitarian setting or in settings affected by adversity, we actually have uh, quite a robust evidence base on a number of different interventions that by definition have been devised for them to be applied in complex settings, in complex low resource settings, con context affected by adversity. Um, and so one question I think for researchers will be to really explore uh, first of all, how those interventions actually fit with climate change stressors. Uh, and I guess that for certain stressors like extreme weather events, we sort of can make the reasonable expectation that there will be some effectiveness of those interventions in those settings. But I think the really interesting part is, you know, will those interventions, how do we adapt these interventions for different types of stressors, such as, you know, melting, melting, melting sea ice or climate stresses that are specific to climate change? And I think that's, that's a question. I think that's a research question that we, we really need to answer. But I, I think the point is that I think we have effective and excellent interventions for a variety of settings. Uh, and I think it will be really interesting to explore how those existing interventions might be adapted for climate change specifically. And just to just to add to that again from this kind of public, you know, public mental health sort of evaluation angle, I think that Ali and I are 
speaking from. Um, the other, the other thing I think that we really need to think about generally, but also specifically to climate change is really how to, um, how to meet needs holistically. So that goes back to that systems thinking idea. Um, but what we don't know a lot about in sort of the um, program evaluation or sort of specifically mental health um, and well-being sort of program evaluation literature is um, how, how to integrate mental health programming with non-mental health programming. We also don't know a lot about the impacts of non-mental health programming on mental health outcomes, right? And so I think those are two things research-wise that we really need to understand better. And to give some concrete examples of what I mean, um, you know, I think we need to understand not only the effectiveness of, of programs, but also how do you take a mental health program and deliver it alongside something like a livelihoods program, right? To, to help people get jobs or, or um, access new kinds of job opportunities. Um, and that has a lot of relevance to climate change, because if we think about how our economies um, and the job sector in general is going to transition in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, that's a tremendous question. And there are many ways that that can go. But surely if, if, that's, if that transition is done um, in a thoughtful and supportive manner that actually protects and, and, and promotes mental health and well-being, then in general, societies will be better off. And so really, you know, just bringing it back to the program thing, thinking about that integration is important. But then also thinking about how when people participate in, um, let's say, climate adaptation or mitigation programs, how that might actually impact their mental health and well-being. And examples might be something like a community gardening program, right? Or, you know, even linking it further with mental health. Um, if people who are living with mental health problems actually participate in, um, in agriculture culture programs within their communities, um, increase food security, let's say, um, but potentially also improve mental health and well-being. We need evidence to kind of look at implementation factors and effectiveness for all of these things. Yeah, and what I would add is that when people think about interventions, they tend to think about, you know, one patient presenting with symptoms, um, looking to reduce those symptoms. I think we can speak to that, but I think we also need to take a broader uh, public health framework that considers interventions at multiple levels from individual to community and society um, and also at different times relative to the exposure so um, you know primary prevention secondary prevention so immediately after exposure and then once symptoms have developed um, so with that said i think you know if you if you have a patient who presents with um, trauma related or other symptoms um, that are linked to climate change i think a lot of the third wave cognitive behavioral therapies have a lot to say in terms of validating people's experiences. Climate change is scary. It's an existential threat. Um, you know, it's okay to have negative thoughts about it or be concerned about it. Like that is understandable. So encouraging people to be non-judgmental um, and accepting about their experiences while also helping them regain a sense of agency and control over their experiences, whether it's through individual actions against climate change, but maybe more importantly, collective action. So encouraging um, people with these concerns to get involved in activism, um, even though that might be a different uh, intervention than clinicians are, are, are used to, while also, as Yura said, being cognizant that um, being engaged in activism could run the risk, and, and I think we don't know, we need more research on this, but um, at least uh, intuitively can run the risk of increasing burnout or leading to a sense of hopelessness. So sort of balancing those, those things. 
Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, and to kind of continue with thinking about things a little more broadly, um, where does all that information leave us in terms of needed policy changes? Sarah, do you wanna kick us off on this one and then I can pop in? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we're talking about climate change trauma and mental health. A lot of the policies um, are not really mental health specific. They're policies to mitigate climate change, um, policies to address the social determinants of health, including housing, employment, social connection, um, and policies that reduce pre-existing disparities in mental health care, um, fostering resilience um, and, and access so that people are psychologically healthy to help combat this big problem. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, those are the three things that I would say. And Yura, what else do you have to say? No, just to really emphasize kind of and uplift what you said, which I think is ultimately like the best prevention. And we said this when we started the, the podcast, the best prevention is climate change mitigation. Our policies that actually reduce the impacts of climate change on populations. Um, but ironically, hopefully what listeners have been hearing throughout the podcast and that's woven through is that there's preliminary evidence and definitely more research needed in this area, but some preliminary evidence that suggests that actually engaging in a healthy way on this topic can be helpful for mental health. So if it is something that you're worried about, um, actually thinking about what kinds of policies might exist in the area where you live um, and, and thinking about how you might actually contribute to policy change eventually um, could be useful. Um, we, you know, we need to really understand this more and we need, we certainly need to understand thoughtful ways of helping people engage um, just because there are risks associated with engagement potentially. Um, but I, but I think that's the bottom line. Um, you know, we, we need to support mental health policies, but we really, really, uh, for our own sake as a species need to support climate policy as well. And, and the other thing that I'll add to what Sarah said is that mental health and well-being professionals and trauma professionals specifically have a role to play in this, whether they realize that or not, in the sense that as respected members of their uh, professional societies and of their of their communities, um, they they hold a position of, of power and, and a, of, of, of the ability to kind of speak out on this issue. And so if people are interested in getting engaged, there's certainly room to engage um, professionally. And there are many sort of um, professional societies thinking about climate change. So in the last year, obviously, there was the briefing paper released by ISTS, uh, ISTSS, but there have also been other um, mental health oriented and psychiatric societies releasing statements um, and, and other other pieces. So lots of room to engage, lots of room to, um, you know, participate regardless of who you are and what you do. Okay, um, so I, I think we are uh, just now thinking on the big picture level and, and thinking about how people can kind of extend their learning um, from here on this topic. And I guess my, my last question for you all is just like, kind of where can people go from here? Um, so, you know, the briefing paper is out there as just a tremendous resource um, that you all have put together and that we have encouraged people um, to take a look at. Are, are there other resources or there other recommendations that you have for, for things to take a peek at um, for folks who want to learn more? 
Well, just one last plug for the briefing paper. I'd say that even if folks don't have um, the, the bandwidth to read all the way through, I definitely would suggest taking a look at the recommendations, um, you know, just to see, because we've made recommendations on sort of policy, public health, um, and, and clinical fronts. Um, but yeah, Sarah and Ali, do you have any other suggestions in terms of resources and, and what folks might do? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is as you're looking at both the briefing paper and also, you know, there are a lot of other great papers that Yura mentioned some, and I know there was one that came out of the UK recently on climate change and mental health that was really great. I, I'm like terrible at remembering names of, of authors. Um, but if you're interested in this issue, reach out to people um, who are also doing work in this space. And what I've been really struck by is how collaborative everyone is and how um, people do wanna work together to learn more about this and address this issue. Um, so I think connecting around the science of climate change, trauma and mental health um, could be a really great thing. And um, from, from another kind of extending perspective for ISTSS, you all are working on a couple more products that are scheduled to come out later um, in our ISTSS facts, Fast Facts uh, series. So um, there will be some additional uh, materials for folks to check out uh, later this month as well. So um, I just want to close by saying thank you all again so much for taking the time to come talk with us today and share uh, just the tremendous experience that you have um, in this area and on this important topic. And so uh, thank you to everyone for listening to Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. We'll see you next time. <laughs>